0: Hi, I'm Natalie Mast, and you're listening to the Conversations Speaking With podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or through TuneIn Radio. Today I'm joined by the University of Western Australia's William Bow, a.k.a. the poll bludger, who's going to talk to us about the campaign so far and the likely outcomes on Saturday. So, it's day 50 of the campaign and we're five days out from polling day. As this campaign finally draws to a close, what are the polls telling us at a national level?
1: There has been gentle movement in favour of the coalition, probably not of such scale that you can state with actual confidence that it's sort of broken the limits of the margin of error. That uh, there has been pretty much stasis throughout the campaign. There has been very little to separate the parties. It's been pretty much every poll that's been published has been in the range of 5149 one direction to 5149 the other direction. It's just that in the course of the last week or so, more of those 5149s have been in favour of the coalition, less of the martial labour. So I think it's possible to discern that there's been a little bit of movement in favour of the coalition.
0: So when you do look at the data from individual states, are you seeing any significant swings away from the government?
1: There has always been a most pronounced swing in Western Australia. Uh, Conversely, I think that the Liberals are holding up relatively well in Tasmania. That's not to say that they'll hold all their marginal seats there, but uh, those I think are the two extremes. Probably the the Liberals are doing best in, in Tasmania. Uh, weakest in Western Australia and there is the enormous wild card of South Australia where the Nick Xenophon team is clearly going to be a major factor and it it has pollaxed Labor's primary vote there. It's certainly bitten very deeply into the Liberal primary vote as well, and it's created a really unpredictable situation in which uh, a very large number of seats are impossible to call, as a result of which, it's as, it, as much as it looks like the the terrain is becoming more favourable towards the Liberals, there is the risk for them that the Nick Xenophon team achieves something so extraordinary that it ends up costing them their majority. It's tough if you're going to break the two-party duopoly, but I think more and more Australians are disaffected with the way
0: the major parties have behaved, this tribal toxic politics, and I just think people want something a little different from the political centre. Right, so on Saturday night, as we're glued to our TVs, the radio and the internet, what seat should we be keeping our eye on?
1: I think the zone of uncertainty is so big that in every seat date there is a whole brace of seats. I think the best thing you can do is sort of pick representative seats. I'd have a look at banks in southern Sydney because there's a few seats in southern Sydney that Labour sort of lost either for the first time ever or almost for the first time ever in 2013. Labor had an historically terrible result in Sydney, and if there's going to be any show for a Labor recovery at all, they're going to need to recover solidly in those sorts of areas. So I'd sort of regard banks as a sort of litmus test for a couple of other seats and to sort of see if Labor really are making headway where they need to in Sydney. Similarly, a concentration of important seats in central Queensland Uh, I would use Capricornia as my litmus test for probably three broader seats. Capricornia is a seat that Labor only rarely loses. It loses it at particularly bad elections. Uh, 2013 was one one such election. Labor is hoping that a regional downturn in that area will deliver a bunch of seats that are normally difficult to win. Even at elections where Labor is doing quite well, they don't normally win seats like Dawson and Flynn, uh, but they're, they're hopeful this time and if they're going to be any sort of a show, that sort of thing will need to come through. So keep an eye on Capricornia to see if, if Labor is winning that seat. If they're winning it well, then you start to look at some of the other seats. In South Australia, the electorate of Mayo is the most likely seat to fall to the Nick Xenophon team. Again, that's the sort of canary in the coal mine for the Nick Xenophon team. If they aren't doing as well as anticipated in Mayo, then those sorts of apocalyptic scenarios are off the table. But if they're winning well in Mayo, then we have to start wondering what other seats they can reel home in South Australia. Uh, in Western Australia, uh, I think there are two seats that are both really line ball. There are a number that could go either way, but I don't think anyone can state with confidence what's going to happen in Cowan in Perth's northern suburbs. And again, that's an electorate that is representative of Perth suburbia more generally. If Labor are doing well, very well in Cowan, winning that easily, then you're starting to look at a few other seats in Perth like Hasluck and Swan. The threat is real. If you only really know the leader of a minor party but don't know their candidates, if you don't really know their policies, then don't vote for them. If your local vote is for Labor, Greens or an Independent and you, and you are in one of the 20 or so key battleground seats across the country, it is a vote for the chaos of a hung parliament.
0: Okay, so earlier in the campaign, there was talk about the possibility of a hung parliament. How likely do you feel that outcome is now?
1: Uh, I'd put it below 50%, but it's it's a real possibility. And again, we're coming back to that wild card of the Nick Xenophon team. I think the Nick Xenophon team is thought likely to win the seat of Mayo, Uh, And then there is the possibility that they win the two big regional seats in South Australia which are Barker and Gray. If they take home all of them, then they've taken a big three-seat bite out of the coalition seat total. And they're also under pressure from uh, the old independents seeking to make a comeback. Tony Windsor in New England and uh, Rob Oakeshott now running in the seat of Cowper in New South Wales. Both of them, by all accounts, are really taking the challenge up to the National Party. So if all of those come through, we've got five seats going missing from the coalition seat total before we start factoring in labour losses. If that uh, ends up transpiring then I think we've got a very big chance of winning a hung parliament. It doesn't look like Labor are winning enough seats to reel the coalition back from their starting point of 90 back to 75. It's difficult to see Labor taking 15 seats out of the coalition, but if the Liberals are also and the Nationals are also losing as many as five seats to non-major party players, then that's the, the, the scenario where, where we have a crossbench that is big enough to allow for a hung parliament scenario to enter the equation.
0: The total number of votes cast in favour of Remain was 16,141,241. The total number of votes cast in favour of Leave was 17,410,742. Okay, Since Friday's shock referendum results, there's been a lot of focus on Brexit and then the subsequent political fallout in the UK. How important an issue do you think Brexit will be in the final days of the campaign? And then which of the major parties do you think will get the most mileage?
1: I think that Brexit has changed the atmosphere of the campaign. I don't necessarily think that I think you know, there's a, an awareness in Australia that you know Britain, for all of its cultural and historical significance to us, is not the engine that drives the Australian economy. I think people well realise that we're not you know fundamentally integrated to the British economy in any meaningful way in the modern age. But uh, where it helps the coalition is in uh, you know the the, the great. The financial turmoil that has attended to it, people are seeing you know extraordinary things happening on stock markets, and it, it dovetails very nicely with coalition messages to answer the question as to who it favours. I don't think there can be any doubt that this change in atmosphere, this sense of uncertainty that has been stimulated by the Brexit result, uh, a reminder that anything can happen in this world, I think that activates conservative instincts. And that favours not only conservative parties, it favours incumbent parties. And uh, since the the coalition government ticks both of those boxes, uh, I don't think there's any uh, question that that it's been an electorally welcome development that they now have this rhetorical pitch to make in the final week that we're the safe pair of hands in a dangerous world and uh, they will be running that message very heavily in the final week.
0: It's Tony again. Tony Windsor. Yeah. What does he want? He wants me to take him back. Well, it was okay for a time, I guess. Yeah, but then he ran off of Julia. Yeah. Do you miss him? Sometimes. But things have changed and I've moved on. And you're doing so well without him. One of the big stories today was the ad from the Nationals that equated Tony Windsor to the male in a bad love affair. How how have negative ads been during the campaign compared to previous elections? In terms of
1: television advertising, I I don't think that they've been anything like as hard-hitting in this campaign, actually. If you look at the coalition advertising and compare it with the absolute barrage of that very particular style of advertisement... ...that the coalition where the Liberal Party were trading in, where, you know, you had a lot of black, red and white, basic colours on the screen, sort of tense, doomy music going on, deep voiceovers, three-word slogans hammering in negative messages. Uh, That really was a motif of the Liberal Party. I haven't seen any... I've seen very little of uh, Liberal Party advertising that falls into that uh, equation... There have certainly been negative Liberal Party ads running against the Labor Party over taxation and uh, the, the, you know, the, the central issues in relation to this campaign, in relation to their, their negative gearing image. Uh, the most memorable Liberal Party advertisement, for better or more likely worse, was the one with the uh, tradesmen. Bill Shorten even wants to go to war with someone like me, who just wants to get ahead through an investment property. Uh, relating that uh, he was concerned about what Labor was going to do in terms of taxation and negative gearing. That was an interesting advertisement. It wasn't a really psychologically brutal advertisement, though, in the way that a lot of the Liberal Party advertisements had been. Uh, In saying that, though, I think the the biggest story uh, is that television advertising in particular is, with every election that passes, becomes less important. It used to be that a really potent attack head could blow an election wide open. That's no longer the case. Uh, Increasingly, uh, media advertisements are being disseminated through the social media. They're increasingly being more precisely targeted to their target audiences. So it's difficult for an observer to just sit back, have the television on and get a sense of what the campaign looks like because the campaign is increasingly fragmented and targeted. And no doubt at the local level, there is a great deal of negativity going on. You just mentioned an advertisement that specifically relates to the New England campaign. And uh, in Western Australia, the Liberal Party have been sort of trying to send the message that Labor's candidates, in particular electorates, are kind of too left-wing, too radical, too soft on national uh, security issues. Uh, so I think there's a lot of local-level messaging going on with the Liberal Party, but I think their kind of macro-level national message has sort of been more positive, been more about selling Malcolm Turnbull as a sort of mature and uh, safe pair of hands who has a, uh, a story to tell about jobs in the economy and uh, allegedly has a plan to move Australia forward on those fronts. Those have been the big messages to come through on their television advertising.
0: So we did see a very awkward interview between Chloe and Bill Shorten the other day. Tell me a little bit about your typical weekend as a dad. Well, first of all, Clementine, as you know, our youngest, uh, is... uh, got the genetic DNA of a rooster so she gets up when the sun rises. So she would normally come and wake us up. Is that the sort of campaigning we're likely to see a lot more of in the future or did it not really uh, hit its mark?
1: I don't think that particular one hit its mark, but you always, it's not a new phenomenon trying to soften the image of a leader, particularly one like Bill Shorten, who doesn't really have a terribly domestic image, you know, he came through through the union movement and he sort of doesn't really have much of a personal persona outside of his political being. So I can see why Labor thought that they needed to sort of domesticate, if that's the right word. Bill Shorten, that's not the right word. To project a more domestic image would be the more accurate way of putting it of Bill Shorten. And uh, it didn't surprise me at all that that happened. It's probably telling though that it did seem rather awkward and didn't come off. Um, It sort of goes back to the fact that uh, Bill Shorten doesn't have a very warm and friendly image to begin with. It's sort of a reason for that, he's hard to project in that way. And when he sort of tries to to do that, you sort of see that it does look awkward and you sort of understand why he has the image that he does in the first place. So I don't think that was a particularly effective piece of communications, but you can see why the imperative was there. It's not a new development, you know, know, that you know... you know, Richard Nixon had his dog on. Checkers. Yes, yes, obviously. So there, there's a there, there's a fine old tradition of doing this sort of thing. And obviously, like every other tradition of campaign communications, this one is adapting to the social media age. But the the basic messages don't change. It's, it's a change of form rather than content.
0: Things are gonna be different in the Senate this time. We've got an entirely new way of um, electing our senators. What insights can you provide into how the Senate might look following this double dissolution election?
1: Are probably disappointingly similar to the last one from the last government's perspective because we've got a cancelling out of having a new electoral system that makes it tougher for minor parties with a double dissolution election, which makes it easier for minor parties. There's 12 seats up for election in each state. There isn't a huge hurdle to clear. Uh, it would have been absolute bedlam to have held a double dissolution under the old system. You'd have had two micro-party senators from every state. At least the micro-party winners on this occasion will have a reasonably solid base vote. You won't have people like Ricky Muir winning from 0.5% of the vote. But there, one thing the polls have shown, which I neglected to touch on earlier, is that there has been an increase in the others' vote during the course of the campaign. And to a higher level than it was at in 2013 when we saw extraordinarily high non-major party votes in the Senate... So presumably those votes are going to escalate still higher and it will not be that difficult a call for a minor party, micro party candidate who has some sort of a public profile to rustle together probably about 3% of the vote is what they'll need. And I think pretty much in every seat you will get one of these candidates sneaking through along with that wild card I keep coming back to which is the Nick Xenophon team. Clearly the Nick Xenophon team is going to win multiple seats in South Australia. You would, I wouldn't even rule them out picking up a seat in one or two other states. I don't think it's likely, but it's possible. But in South Australia, on a conservative estimate, I'd say that they'd win three seats. And uh, so what we're going to see is that the crossbench is going to become a little bit less complex. We're going to see people like John Madigan and Ricky Muir going out, and uh, in their place we'll see more Nick Xenophon team senators. As well as that though, there is going to be an assortment of people winning the 12th seat in other states from low shares of the vote. I think Darren Hinch is a good chance of winning a seat in Victoria. I think David Lionhelm is a good chance of getting re-elected in New South Wales. Pauline Hanson is in with a show in Queensland. I think most people think that Jackie Lamb is going to get re-elected in Tasmania. There are even suggestions that she will win a second seat, so her running mate will get elected as well. None of them can take anything for granted, but I think the most likely outcome is that we will see, in the crossbench, in addition to the Greens, who will probably win about eight seats, we'll see three seats for Nick Xenophon and probably an assortment of three other senators uh, winning off their own tickets in other states.
0: Okay, so today the Australian reported that pre-polling is up 33% from the same time in the 2013 campaign, so about 1.13 million people have already cast their vote. Uh, I'm quite interested in whether or not you've noticed a change in the way the larger parties especially are campaigning as they try to appeal to early voters, and then whether or not you think that the AEC might step in and make it harder to pre-poll.
1: The the campaigns are behaving as if the three-week period is a definite deadline now that they do actually have to have a story to tell. They have to have policies out there by the time that pre-polling begins, and this wasn't something they even felt obliged to think about a couple of terms ago. In certain other ways, I wonder if they are adapting enough. We still have these farcical campaign launches happening one week out from Election Day. And, um, you know, there are various tactical reasons why they do that, but I'm sort of wondering whether or not it might actually make more sense to start having campaign launches that are actually worthy of the name, in that they do actually launch the campaign uh so in in some ways i uh, i wonder if there's just a bit of uh systemic resistance to change but i uh, certainly you know i i having said that the the parties have changed their behaviour they are uh moving some of their sort of communications to earlier on, and we're seeing a sort of broader spread of activity. they're still running into the age old problem though which is, OK, we have got a lot of people pre-polling, but we, equally we have a lot of people who aren't pre-polling. And I tend to think that people who vote on polling day are people who are less politically enthused. And if you and the less politically enthused voters are the ones who are the most likely to respond to your sort of campaign attack heads, and they really aren't engaging with the campaign at all until the very later stages. So a bit of a problem with trying to do too much advertising in the middle of a campaign like this one. Yes, you'll get the people who are pre-poll voters, but as I said, they're voters who aren't as open to persuasion as polling day voters, and those mid-campaign communications is going to be blocked out and ignored by the people who it matters most to. So it's a very challenging new environment for the parties. In terms of whether or not we're going to see any change to clamp down on pre-polling, I just don't think so. It doesn't seem to be the way the tide is headed. There are concerns about the fact that people are voting before the the, the parties have laid out their case. It's not the way that elections are supposed to happen, but I I think what trumps that is the need to provide voters with as much convenience as possible. We're going to oblige you to vote then it really won't do to then force you to stand in a lengthy queue on election day and go through any more hassle than you have to. Uh, One state, I forget which one, has dropped the requirement that you'll need to pay lip service to the idea when you're doing a pre-poll vote that there's some reason you can't poll on election day. Anyone who's gone through the process will know that this isn't a very gruelling procedure they put you through. But nonetheless, they have dropped the pretense, and uh, I suspect that's going to be a harbinger of what's to come. There's going to be a recognition that people are voting with their feet. They like pre-polling. You don't want to take people to take away from people something that they like, particularly in relation to something as electorally sensitive as the casting of their vote. So I think pre-polling is the way of the modern world. There are problems with it, but I think they're going to have to learn to live with them.
0: OK, so let's talk about uh, issues that have come up through the campaign. Were First off, were there any that you were surprised uh, managed to resonate?
1: Um, not as such. I think that the coalition campaign has been reasonably predictable in terms of the positive message that it sought to sell. What's interested me is that there hasn't been any too much of an attempt to play on Bill Shorten with respect to... What had really been politically damaging to him before he became the leader, I think there was a sense that, you know, Bill's got too much baggage was a line that the the Liberal Party were clearly workshopping for this campaign about a year ago. They used that one at their national conference. And they were running videos showing Bill Shorten... knifing Kevin Rudd, so to speak, and then going back to him few years later, that sort of comment he made about he supports whatever Julia Gillard's policy is on the issue, the Trade Union Royal Commission, sort of shots of him squirming in the witness box during the the Royal Commission. We haven't seen any of that. And I, I think what that shows you is that the Liberals threw away a lot of that advantage when they got rid of Tony Abbott. Now, I'm not saying that wasn't worth doing. It was. I don't think they had any choice. But in doing that, they surrendered a lot of that advantage that they had over Labor about being a party of stability, a party that isn't infected with politics for its own sake and the way that the Labor Party is. What has surprised me is where the Liberals in particular haven't been going rather than where they have. I think in terms of their message about jobs, growth, employment, opportunity, you know, this is all interchangeable stuff. We've heard it at pretty much every election campaign by both sides since the dawn of time. So, you know, it hasn't been a surprising campaign in terms of the images that the Liberals have sought to pursue.
0: Well, speaking of negative, Labor's gone pretty hard on uh, Medicare and possible privatisation or reduced services and the like. Uh, how do you think that's gone for them?
1: I think it's gone well for them. I think that the the, the weak before last was a good week for Labor. Labor had a bad week when they basically uh, announced that they would be running bigger budget deficits that uh, was a bit of a gift for the Liberal Party in terms of the messages they were trying to project so at that point of the campaign I was sort of anticipating that we were going to be seeing late campaign momentum toward the Liberal Party and that you know things would end up being a little more sunnier for them than maybe it appeared earlier on but I really do think that labour turned that around in the, the last week in particular the, the sort of second last week of the campaign i really do think that that message resonated people believed it uh, there which is interesting because there was a lot of negative uh reaction in the news media and among the commentariat to what the labour party were doing You know, they were saying well this is completely dishonest you know you haven't got anything to back this up but uh, I, uh, people are ready to believe that privatising, breaking an election promise and privatising Medicare are things that a Liberal government might all too readily do. And, uh, you know, the, the, these aren't perceptions that have appeared out of thin air. We obviously Tony Abbott promises left, right and centre. And uh, I think that really did lasting damage and we're seeing a legacy of that. You know, it opens, you know, you can call it a scare campaign if you will. Whether or not that's uh, mean, false or dishonest, uh, that, you know, sometimes scary things are real. But what really matters here is that Labor has hit a nerve. There are perceptions. This seems like a credible idea in the eyes of voters. And in particular, it's a strength for Labor. People genuinely would not believe that that was something that the Labor Party were going to do. They would believe that the Liberal Party might do it. And uh, I, I really think that hit home pretty hard and it had the Liberal Party pretty
0: worried. So this has been a fairly presidential style campaign with a lot of focus on both leaders. But I'm interested in hearing your views on who you think from both major parties have been great performers and who's been a little disappointing.
1: As you say, you know, I think they've done such a good job of of focusing the the attention on the, the leaders that, you know, you need to be pretty politically engaged to have developed a sense of how everybody else is going. I perhaps have a little bit of a Western Australian centric perception here. I think that Julie Bishop's performed well during the campaign. I think that she has added a little bit of heft over here in Western Australia to some of the attacks that they've been waging against Labour Party candidates in marginal seats. She's sort of succeeded in adding a little bit of authority to things that might have looked a bit kind of grubby and subterranean if they didn't have her kind of imprimatur upon them. I think she's probably been best on ground as far as I can see. The Labour Party campaign has really been tightly focused on Bill Shorten as it needs to be because the party doesn't have that much media space. Uh, I don't think though, maybe my memory is failing me, but we haven't had any real train wreck performances in the media from any of the of the front line. God knows we've seen some a few terrible performances from candidates in marginal seats who sort of weren't known before and now are for all the wrong reasons. But uh, it, it's been a pretty smooth campaign by both sides. There haven't been any embarrassing moments. The leaders' campaigns, part the the leaders' debates, passed without incident. Probably Bill short and performed better in them than than Malcolm Turnbull did. Tanya Plibersek, I think, has been effective in getting Labor's message out, particularly in that kind of Labor versus Greens conflict zone. She has sort of been sent out to the front line in order to sort of shore up Labor's vote on the left whereas Bill Shorten's in charge of pleading to the, the, the middle-of-the-road voters who might vote over Labour or Liberal. those uh, The kind of leftist centre voters don't respond well to Bill Shorten, so they do have a bit of an asset in her, and, and no doubt also in Anthony Albanese. But uh, from what I've seen in the media, it's sort of Tanya Plibersek, who really has been the public face of those communications and I think has, has advanced that argument well.
0: Right. Well, William, thanks for joining me again.
1: Great pleasure. Thank you very much.
0: Don't forget that The Conversation will be providing coverage of the election through Saturday night with plenty of post-election analysis starting Sunday and continuing through the week. Thank you for listening to this Speaking With podcast episode. Just a reminder, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or through TuneIn Radio. If you liked this podcast or have ideas or suggestions for the Speaking With series, please leave us a review or comment on iTunes.